You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today I've got my friend Chase Taylor. Chase is the founder of Pinecone Macro. Chase, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's awesome to have you back on. I think you've been on like a couple of times. So great to have you back on again. This is the third, I think. So hopefully the third time's a charm. And maybe yeah, third time. yeah, no, whatever you say is always right. So um, I mean, so far, I mean, my problem is I just don't speak to you enough. So well, we can fix that. <laughs> Awesome. So I guess just to get started, um, so over the last month-ish, we've seen um some amount of turmoil in the banking in the banking sector as it relates to rate hikes. Um, and I guess the value of collateral, the value of capital going down, you know, banks invested in long duration assets and um, you know, the, the price declines have led to various problems. So, you know, from that standpoint, how are you thinking about that? And, you know, is this sort of an investment opportunity worth paying attention for? Because a lot of these regional banks, for example, have uh, gotten absolutely killed. Yeah, so I'll start with that part first. I, I do think, so let me first say, I, as a rule for myself, I don't. I just don't trade financials, never have, just the rule for myself, because to, I find them just too difficult to figure out from like a, if you're actually going to go try to look at the balance sheet or figure out what is what it's worth, like it's just too opaque and too many moving parts. So I just don't, I don't really trade them. But from a macro perspective or just from a um, opportunity set, when you look at the reality of what's going on with them versus their price, yeah, I think, I think buying regionals will, will pay. I wouldn't want to hold them too long, but I think, um, I, I think it makes sense to buy them and hold on to them for a few years. It's kind of a coffee can type trade, but at the same time, I, I think we're definitely heading into a recession. So they, they may not be done going down yet, but from the bigger perspective of the banking crisis stuff, I, I think I mean, there's two important things to note. One is this kind of the bank specific stuff, but yes, like SVB was doing really risky stuff. And what they did was, was really dumb. If you just kind of take a step back and look at it, but at the same time, I mean, the banking system has a lot of interest rate risk and that doesn't really go away with adding some liquidity and, you know, throwing in some new facilities. At, at the end of the day, we're losing deposits and a lot of those deposits are going to go to money market funds until those aren't paying so much. So typically whenever you have a bunch of money going from the banking system into the money markets, you have a lot of problems uh, financially. So I think that's, I think that's something people, investors should take very seriously. Like having deposit flight is, is not something to kind of play with. So, you know, all these mortgages that were written at, at two, 3%, like, I think a lot of people look at that as like, man, that's great for the consumer. Well, sure it is, but it's not so great for the people holding those as, as assets. Like that's a, that's kind of a, a significant problem. Um, so I, I think a lot of people are actually underselling uh, what the stress that, that we have in the banking system. Obviously the Fed papered it over, so it's not going to be a bank specific problem anytime soon, but the interest rate risk part of this, um, you know, that, that's not just in, in the, the regulated banking system. That's, we're going to find that in, in shadow banks. We're going to find it in overseas banks that the Fed can't, you know, hand a bunch of dollars to as easily. So um, definitely something to take seriously. 
Rasan, and, and I guess, you know, from that standpoint, you know, you sort of described the Fed as, you know, papering over this crisis as they have, you know, many other crises in the past. So do you think, um, so, you know, from that standpoint, do you think that, you know, as of now, is that if the rate hikes are, are pretty much done? Um, I think you recently, I think this morning, especially on, uh, um, on your Twitter, you, you were, um, you retweeted or you talked a bit about the um, ISM manufacturing data that came out, uh, which has been super weak. So, you know, I guess just from that standpoint, saying so, you know, with your view for recession, uh, that we're headed for recession, um, or do, do, do you think that we're, we're sort of at the end of all the rate hikes? I think we're probably close, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they take what to me is already a policy error and just make it a policy travesty. Um, I, I would have stopped probably 200 basis points ago, personally. I, I think they, they really did the job already. Um, I, I, at the end of the day, they just they, they don't have enough respect for the lagged effects of what they're doing, in my opinion. And I think we're just now starting to kind of get a feel for what what is to come. Like you said, ISM, not just like that headline number, but you look under the hood at the employment, um, new orders, like lead times, like pretty much every subcomponent of the ISM was was brutal. And I think it's all going to get worse from here. I don't think it gets better from here. Um, you start looking at things like distillate demand, you know, freight indexes things like that, they're starting to like really melt and show the economy starting to slow. Um, it's, but a lot of it's still kind of under the surface and the, it hasn't hit some of the headline spending numbers yet. So a lot of people just aren't paying attention to it, don't care. They're just like, well, wages are good, you know, GDP is decent, jobs are still fine, but all that, that's like all the most lagging indicators you can look at. So I, what I find is most of the financial world, especially the Fed, just staring at the, the most lagging indicators they can while the leads kind of melt down um and not, not like not in a way that suggests a small like little paper cut recession either like a lot of the leading indicators suggest a, a, a perhaps a significant one whether that be really really deep and, and short or kind of long and, and and you know painful i i've been in the hard landing camp all along i've always thought the soft landing story was was comical and i, I still do I, I haven't flinched from that i, I think the hard landing is, is still very much in place um so but again, I, you, you go listen to a Bullard speech and you, you come away thinking like, obviously he's not the Fed, but this, at the end of the day, like he's not that far away from the consensus, I don't think. So I would not be shocked if they do one or two more from here. And, and when you say, you know, they have very little respect for the lag effect. So what you're saying is um, they've, they've, so instead of say hiking to say 300, uh, 300 basis point, 3%, and then, you know, still waiting for a year, waiting for six months to see if there's any effects, it just kept on hiking. Yeah. I mean, you know, we got so used to 25 basis points as like, that was what you do. That was, if you hike or you cut, you do 25, especially if you hike, you do 25. Um, and I think they got so behind uh, the curve, they had to go 50 and 75. But I think we all kind of forgot, like, 25 was the standard for a reason. And part of that reason is because you don't want to get in a situation where you, you hike so much that you, and you have no time to feel the effects. I, I thought it was just completely insane. You, you know, you're doing a 75 and a 75 and then you haven't even been raising rates for like six months. And then the fed looks around and like, well, jobs are still fine. So we got to keep going 75. Like, well, that's, that's like smashing two pizzas and saying, well, my stomach doesn't hurt yet. So I should have a third pizza. Like, give it a minute and your stomach's gonna hurt you know like i i think and, and all along not, not only did they ignore it but they went out of their way to kind of fade the whole 
the whole phenomenon. They were saying, well, financial conditions tighten faster these days. So we think not only are we not worried about the lag, but we think, you know, lag might even be shorter or even non-existent. They may be almost like a real-time thing. You, tons of papers were written on this. The Fed, including Jay Powell, like brought it up to say like, hey, maybe, maybe the, the, we have much shorter lags than we used to. And I think, I think it's actually completely wrong when you look at things like obviously the trillions of dollars of stimulus and the excess savings that were kind of piled piled high and are just now maybe starting to run out mid-year or run low mid-year at least. If you look at that, like that tells me the lag's going to be a lot longer because you can do whatever you want to the economy if it still has trillions of dollars sitting around from, from stimulus. But whenever that goes dry, all of a sudden those lags hit really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I love that analogy of um, you know, downing two pizzas and then, you know, your stomach's not hurting yet. So, you know, you could always down a third. So I think that's a that's a that's a great analogy. It's a great way of putting it. And um, and, and, and and so from that standpoint, um, I guess after this whole banking fiasco, you know, a lot of these a lot of great I guess, cuts, you know, on the flip side have been not been priced in. So, you know, if you look at, say, you know, on Bloomberg, if you look at WIRP, uh, like the interest rate probabilities function, um, say at the start of the year versus now versus in March, um, you know, it's changed drastically. And, you know, I think about one or two cuts was priced in to the end of the year at the start of the year. Um, but now it's it's way more. Um, and so from that standpoint, so, you know, what's, what, what, what sort of your view on that? Do you think, you know, bonds um, or do you think, uh, I guess, your dollars or interest rate futures in general? You know, do you, is there Are there any good opportunities in that space? Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and even with where we're at now, with what we're pricing in, I'm going to pull that because I want to see it today. But um, even with where we're at with these cuts, like priced in, it, it it's it's not that meaningful to me. Like it, it never has. I know every time there's like a one cut priced in, everyone's like, oh, they're priced in a recession. I'm like, no, no. Like you go look at, at the SOFR curve, whether it's 24, 25. I mean, it, it's still showing a pretty decent, you know, uh, interest rate out all the way through that period. So I think, and now we have at the end of January, three and a half um, cuts priced. So that's not, that's not nothing. Don't get me wrong, but I, I, that still implies a, a rate of almost 4%. So you, you tell me like, are we pricing in a recession with 4%, you know, fed funds rate? No, of course not. Like, but, but it's, the market sees some weakness and has to, has to price something in, but they're definitely not pricing in um any any sort of like real recession or or deep slowdown or anything um i think they're pricing in the fact that the fed's gone a little too far and that's about it uh so to me when i when i look at sofer sofer curve two-year futures whatever you want to look at um precious metals uh, any of it it it's all still a really good opportunity um with that said i've been early like i've been kind of off and on messing with sofer two year for i don't know at least probably six months so I've taken a couple of probes at this thing and been been dead wrong, but I'm I'm along the two year now. I'm along uh, Z24 and 25. So for futures, so I'm um, I'm there and ready to go. But I'm also in duration. Like I'm, I'm happily long, you know, TLT and stuff too because I think I think it's all going to have to come down because I think it for for me almost everybody I know believes in the in the secular inflation is here and it's it's here to stay story. And I think I think that's only half true. And I think in some ways the market has priced it in is largely true. So I think you can even make money out, out on the curve. Well, when, when you say that that's only half true, what do you, what do you mean? So are you like, do you, are you suggesting there's going to be a continuation of this kind of inflation for the rest of the decade or? 
Yeah, I struggle with this because, you know, since from 20, 2018, 19, 20, 21, I was just pounding the table that we we're going to have a bunch of inflation. Um, and then we got it. And then I kind of looked forward and was like, okay, well, we're going to have inflation, but maybe like two and a half, three percent, something like that. You know, whenever you look at all these trend changes um, from the last 40 years, I think they're enough. I think some onshoring and um, demographics, things like this, they, I think they're enough to, to make inflation a little higher. But what I've noticed is most people are kind of extrapolating four, five, six, seven percent, like deep into the future. And I, I don't, I just don't think that's the case. I don't, I don't think people understand what it takes um, to get that much inflation over that long of a period of time. Uh, so that my kind of base case is more, more like two and a half is like the new normal, um, kind of the new, the new floor. So, and I, to me, most people think much higher than that. So that's why I think it's half true. Like, yes, secularly inflation has changed and it will be higher. I just don't think it's near on the, on the level that the average inflationista does. And, 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 you know, from that, so from that viewpoint of um, say, you know, over the rest of the decade, we see two and a half to 3% inflation. Um, is that, is that meaningful? Is that, is that meaningfully higher? I mean, you know, that's, it's, you know, some people are saying, you know, we're going to see seven to 8% inflation, you know, the way we've seen for the last you know, year or so, you know, that, you know, that sort of extrapolated over the rest of the decade. And, you know, this is obviously, you know, much lower than that. However, you know, it is still above the Fed's, um, I guess, arbitrarily said, um, two percent inflation mandate. So, from the, you know, from that standpoint, you know, do you think, do you think the two and a half to three percent inflation rate, do you think that is meaningfully higher for, um, because does that actually create a difference, um, you know, from an investing standpoint? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and and to me, the answer is yes. I, but that's what it makes it awkward because when everyone else is screaming seven percent or six percent or five. And you're like two and a half, then it seems like you're coming in so low that it's like, oh, well, that doesn't even matter. It's not even that much different. But going from struggling to meet two percent to struggling to keep it down at two and a half to me is a huge difference. If you're, you know, if I'm a pension fund and I have tens of billions or of dollars, you know, like playing around with fixed income or or like private credit or something, like I absolutely care that inflation is going to be call it seventy five basis points above where it has been for the last 20 years. Like that's a, that's a huge deal. Um, it, anyone that is allocating uh, significant amounts of capital for them or creating policy, it's a big deal. I just think you get to the point, and obviously the Fed's mandates too. A lot of people think they're gonna move that, you know, goalpost up to three or whatever, I don't, but I think they will tolerate two and a half or three um, down the road because they're just gonna have to. The trade-offs will be uh, too painful to try and re-anchor all the way back down to two percent you'll just reach a point where it's like okay well we can throw a whole bunch of people out of work to get from two and a half to two or we can kind of like hang out here and just just let it happen at two and a half or three and they're just gonna have to do it that way political pressure um and, and trade-offs you know if, if you look at the interest on the on the national debt things like that those kinds of trade-offs are just too important and they'll have to yield and leave it there i think Mm -hmm. And and so in that environment where um you know it's, it goes from you know, struggling to meet two percent, which is you know the case pretty much pre uh, pandemic um to like struggling to keep it down to two and a half to three percent, you know what you know what like what sort of assets do you want to be you know long short you know what do you you know what do you want to hold in that kind of environment? I mean to me you can hold a mix of, of everything. I don't I don't think 
what I, what I think you do though, is you, is you don't stay in bonds all the time. The way I think people got used to this, like, what well, is camp in bonds and it's always gonna be fine. I think bonds become a very like cyclical asset where if you're convinced you're about to have a recession, maybe grab some. And if not, probably should stay away from them. Um, but I think real assets will do, do better than they have in the last 20, 30 years, you know, moving in, moving in the future. But, you know, if the Fed has to keep policy rates a little higher than we're used to, then uh, I think value and, and, and uh, just good companies in general, people that have positive cash flow, things like that will just kind of outperform um, everyone's favorite stuff for the last decade, the high growth tech stuff that, uh, you know, just loves that that duration part, you know, like they love having zero interest rates and everything like that. I think, I think everything that did good with, with ZERP and NERP is, is going to probably struggle, uh, especially, com, you know, compared to things like real assets. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, since you bring that up, you know, sort of the, the, the tech names, um, you know, going back to what we were talking about, um, or we were discussing, um, uh, you know, where rates hide from here and, you know, you, you know, you're along those, you know, Z4, Z5, along to your futures, you know, from that standpoint, and at least recently over the last few weeks, you know, it's sort of been um, a case building up um, on some side of Twitter now, um, but on some side of the market as well, that, um, you know, as rates head down, as markets price in, you know, lower interest uh, you know, the Fed, well, or markets price in, the Fed cutting, you know, this should bode well for tech stocks. And, uh, you know, we've seen the Qs rally quite a bit. We've seen, you know, the arcs, uh, uh, the arc kind of name starts to, you know, slowly, uh, you know, come back to life. So, you know, is this, is this sort of sustained at least over, say, the next, I guess, six months or so? Yeah. The funny thing about this whole, this whole trade is like, obviously, if it was as simple as rates downs, tech stocks up, um, this would be easy. But I think w- what you have is a window of time where it's, it's tech stocks or it's rates down, but no recession tech stocks up. But if all of a sudden you have, you know, rates falling and everyone realizes it's because you're about to go into a recession, maybe even like kind of a deep one with a lot of job cuts. That's when the market would, would, I think suddenly want to not, not be invested in, you know, the, the top five NASDAQ stocks. So I think it's a weird situation where they probably do great until everyone kind of has a come to Jesus moment and realizes, oh, this is because we're in, we're about to hit a recession. That That's why rates are plummeting. Um, and at that point, I mean, I think all stocks, you know, will have problems more or less, um, but tech stocks are not going to be, I don't think they're going to be spared just because like rates are lower for them. Uh, far from whenever you look at kind of their valuations, uh, their PE is like higher than it was in the, the froth of 2020 right now. So I, I think they will probably have plenty of problems, but, but it will work in the meantime. And, and I think, you know, liquidity proxies like Bitcoin and gold will, they, they'll see their way through that. They won't care that the economy is slowing down the way that, you know, maybe Google will. Yep. Yep. I think that makes sense. And, and um, I guess going forward from here. So one, you know, with this expectation of the recession, so I think the last time we spoke, um, I think you were pretty bullish on the commodity space in general, and you know you have you you still you still see a lot of, um, especially on Twitter, etc. You still see a lot of you know oil bulls come out, and you know typically, um, the, because the the financial theory sort of states that oil oil demand um declines, um in 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 recessionary times. So you know as we head towards a recession or a hard landing scenario, you know what you know what sort of the story for oil? What's sort of the story for the commodity space in general? 
Yeah, I mean, in a recession, I think most commodities are going to have problems just because that's how it works. Um, I think, I think the OPEC decision or non-OPEC but OPEC decision that just came out really is a sign of weakness, not a sign of strength. I think they know, you know, demand is already soft and this is probably going to get softer as the year goes on. I think they're trying to get out ahead of that. Um, I know most oil traders celebrated that, not I, not me. I, I see that as a sign of weakness personally. Um, but I, I do still think oil, you know, you look at it medium term, supply and demand wise, and it's still a pretty, a pretty good looking picture to me. Uh, in fact, you know, if current prices are lower, then you're really going to struggle to get the badly needed investment that you need. And you're not going to be able to have U.S. shale really go all the way back up to new all-time highs. So um, I don't hate oil, but I, I've been long uh, offshore services stuff for, for, well, over a year now. Um, and ju just today, I actually started to kind of let some of that go and, and kind of trading it in for some precious metals mining uh, companies, just because I think we're finally starting to see the the real economy kind of have like a little bit of a downshift here that that looks meaningful. I've I've been saying for man months that I thought May and June was, was kind of like the 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 window of opportunity where like you'd probably start to see real real the real economy kind of weaken. So I think that's that's a you know we're we're starting to kind of get to the, the edge of that where what I refer to as the lag reaper is going to come and 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 start inflicting some damage. Um, but what I will say is most energy people I know right now hate nat gas and they love oil. I'm, I'm actually kind of on the opposite side of that where um, even though I think a recession is about to happen, I, I still kind of like natural gas here. Um, everyone just thinks of, of gas as being like a very winter specific commodity. And, and it, I think it's turning into a, a, a summer specific commodity where um, basically cooling demand is more important than heating demand. And I think we're gonna have a very hot summer. You're starting, you're starting to see it, you know, around the world. You look at um, India, China, um, some places in South America. They're having like record high temperatures. So, I think whenever the summer finally makes its way to to the U.S., there's gonna be a lot of power burn. It's gonna require a lot of gas, especially as cheap as it is. Everyone, you don't need to burn coal now that you can burn gas for so cheap. So, I think I think we could be bottoming out in the next month or so. And I think gas can be a reasonably recession resistant um commodity to hold in the u.s whereas I, I i think oil will will struggle plenty um if we have you know the recession i think we'll have it that's not not a, a short or shallow one mm -hmm. and and uh and you know from that so from you know from that standpoint so if you look at where natural gas is it's uh i think it's just above uh, above two dollars um so are you so so you'd say you're bullish natural gas at this point, you know, considering how much it's come down over the I mean the expectations of a mild winter simply did not materialize. And so uh, sorry, of a cold winter simply did not materialize, it ended up being a lot milder than what was expected. And you know, this is driven, you know, a lot of these energy names, you know, lower. So, you know, are, are you are you sort of bullish on the natural gas space here? Yeah, absolutely. Um one thing that's kind of frustrating is that, you know, front month is, is barely over two, but if you go out to like that Z24 of 25, like they're actually, they're actually reasonably high. They're like four or five bucks. So um, I wish the pain would have extended its way a little farther, but it didn't. Um, but I, I still own um, that, that, that 24 contract. 25 is really liquid. So it's a little too far out for gas. Um, I mean, I've done it before, but, um, but even, even in the producer space, so a lot of the producers have been hit pretty hard. Um, and you can always just go midstream and just kind of collect your collect your tolls along the way, and those those have been hit plenty. 
Um, problem with those is they like they like to couple to oil. So if oil is going to have a you know a thirty percent down move because of a recession, and say gas stays flat, those midstreams might still get beat up. Although that, that goes for the you know the nat gas producers too. They're they're probably going to run into the same thing where they might really go on sale. The smart thing may be to like oh fine I'll go buy a little bit of futures, um, you know out into the end of twenty three or into twenty four. And then just wait and see if you get into a situation where oil gets hit really hard, gas doesn't, but gas producers just get hit hard anyways because everyone's just selling all their energy ETFs and everything. And then um, it just kind of gets, I, I think gas could become a baby with the bathwater thing where you could really load up during a recession, um, especially if it decouples from its own uh, underlying price. Because then you'll have a situation where all the gas producers will be they'll be so incentivized to just buy back tons of tons of stock. And, and, um, and, and you also mentioned mining names and so, you know, gold's been on a bit of a run. So are you, are you, um, are you constructive on gold as well? Um, look, one looking at, uh, look, looking at the fact that we're going into a recession, gold is supposed to function as a safe haven. It's also very dependent on liquidity. So, probably, you know, you know, when, you know, when you're from that standpoint, you know, you, yeah, bullish yeah, gold metals i have for a few months so same same as some of that like short-term interest rate trades I've, I've been early to it um but now it's finally starting to work uh yeah i mean at the end of the day this is a, it's kind of a perfect macro picture it's a perfect geopolitical picture where you're having tons of central bank buying um partially thanks to i i would assume you know the the sanctions regime and everything that went along with that and the, the fact that we're becoming a little more and more multipolar as time goes on that the dollar diversification and people wanting to hold more gold on the central bank level um, has been has, has definitely helped price a lot. You look at kind of where you would you would think price would be with real rates where they are, or even nominal rates where they are, and on the short short end, um, you would think oil would have gotten or gold would have been just crushed in in the last call it eighteen months, and it's really held up you know remarkably well. I think a lot of that's just that central bank bid and. I'm not saying the central bank bid is going to stay where it was in 2022, you know, perpetually, but I think it will stay strong. So you kind of have the tailwinds of liquidity, as you mentioned, um, central bank buying, call it geopolitics, and then just the macro picture of, you know, until we get to the bottom of, of the recession, gold's going to do great, I think. And, and silver, obviously, along with it, which is just usually kind of high beta gold. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So, and then, and then, you know, when it comes to, uh, I guess the soft commodities, so, um, yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's heavily, at least over the last year, you know, to an extent it's been very driven by the whole Russia Ukraine situation, looking at how big of a, you know, producer stuff like weed, um, that, you know, Ukraine was as well as Russia and, you know, fertilizers did really well and so on. So, you know, from that, you know, from the ag space, you know, do you, do you have any views, you know, I guess it's a little bit more complicated, uh, but, you know, we, we, you know, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, a lot of that's going to be weather dependent. Um, the, the only agricultural commodity um, that I'm really super engaged with um, and have been for a few months has been has been cocoa. We've been really fortunate to, to get it right. Um, and that that's largely, again, it's just very weather driven. Um, if you go from La Nina to El Nino, uh, especially kind of this quickly, it's it's it creates really bad weather in West Africa. and It's going to do a lot of damage to their crops. And it already has. Um, so yeah, very, very, very bullish cocoa and have been for, for a few months. Uh, it's already run up a good bit. So it's kind of, you know, 
a lot of that juice has already been squeezed out, but haven't been involved in, in any of the grains or anything lately. Just, just not, not nothing on, on that. I'm usually, I'm usually trading two or three different agricultural commodities at a time because I love it, but just nothing like strikes me as a slam dunk, either long or short. I, there was a point where I kind of wanted to get short soybeans mostly because the charges look like death, but I, I just couldn't pull the trigger on it. So just not doing as much in that space, but I, the beauty, the beauty of agriculture commodities is we talk about going to recession is, and you want a diversifier finding one of those that has a good story. Like they don't care about, they don't, they just don't care what's going on in macro. Like they're going to do what they do uh, just based on pure supply and demand. And uh, like I say, a, a lot of times it's weather. Um, so if you can get that even half, right. A lot of times you can, you can get those moves. Um, so I definitely encourage listeners to, if you don't trade those, take a harder look at them because man, they're great at, for diversifying. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, heading into a recession, is there anything that you like on the short side? Um, you know, I think some people have pointed out industrials is, you know, something that would suffer as a result of these higher interest rates. If you look at the chart of XLI, the, um, industrials ETF, I think it's struggled, it's, it's struggled to, um, really go, really go higher than a hundred and five. Um, on each other and you know there, there's there's you know obviously a lot of names that um have suffered from these higher interest rate costs and you know that tend to typically do worse in a recession so you know from that standpoint are there any trades that you like going into recession on the short side yeah absolutely and and i definitely i don't have any beef with the industrials that you know, makes perfect sense um, for me though it's home builders i, I yep. the the chart i i actually got short i think it was friday Friday or Monday, um, home builders, and this kind of reached a point where it was like a natural pivot point. So made for a decent entry, but I, I just look at if the Fed really is going to keep over tightening uh, and you're going to keep mortgage rates even above uh, five and just don't see that many new homes being built. And I think they're just wildly overvalued. They've done, they've had a great time in the last year, which is really impressive because of their, you just kind of look at their order book, you know, and, and, their margins and everything that their demand has been, has been decent, but this, a lot of that's just kind of like backward looking. It, it's, it's just like the fed and the economic data they're looking at. Of course, if you look at it, like the last 12 months for home builders, they've been fine, but it's just that like where that where where the order is going to come from in the next year or two, if rates are going to stay where they're at, like, I just don't think there's enough demand at, at 5% uh, mortgage rates for, for new homes. And if, and if there is, it's going to be because they're, just crushing their own margins with a bunch of, uh, you know, extras thrown in for free and all that kind of good stuff. So, yeah, I think home builders can can definitely take a bath before this whole thing's over with. If we go into a proper recession, I, I think they end up uh, significantly lower from here. And and do, and do you have sort of a timeline for when this recession or this hard landing comes? Like second I, half I think of this year. Or... So I think the back half of the year is where like we really start to see deterioration. Like I said, I really like that May, June um, is kind of where I expect to like, for data to like actually become a problem and not, and not just like the forward looking stuff that's already a giant problem if you look at it. Um, anyone that follows leading indicators knows like it's actually really bad already. But but the coincident data, you know, especially the jobs data, um, that's all been fine. Like it, it's really when that jobs data turns that everyone realizes we're, at, you know, we're in a recession. And I think that is, it's more of a second half story, but I could even see a May or June where you're like, maybe a non-farm payrolls comes in about flat and everyone starts to freak out a little bit. Um, but back half of this year, I think before 2024, we're seeing job losses, like outright losses. Um, 
and you'll start to see wages come down meaningfully, inflation come down meaningfully. Um, the, I, the whole story with wages and how much the Fed has paid attention to wages and services to me has been just just criminal. I, I, services and wages are just, they're just pure lagging indicators. They always have been, they always will be. They're like the last things to go, especially with the way the COVID recession hit. It was just, we, we knew that services would lag. They would be the last people to hire. Um, it, and it, it's all kind of played out in a way that made perfect sense. If you go look at like leisure and hospitality, that's like, that's where all the jobs have been coming from in the last few months. It's all low paying services jobs. Um, but like, they were like a million jobs behind a few months ago. Like, of course they were still going to go out and hire people. Like there was a lot of jobs left. Um, and most people would say, oh, well, if we have a bunch of jobs, that's going to create a bunch of wage inflation. But the best way to get wage inflation to go away is to fill all those jobs. And they've been filling those jobs. So now you don't have the crazy competition for another person to work at a hotel. You probably already hired someone. So um, I, if you look at that and then you look at the trade-off between losing high tech, high, high, uh, high wage, like tech management workers losing their jobs and then low wage services workers getting jobs like that, that's not a very sustainable trade-off. That's one that's going to end up hurting the, the economy um, on an aggregate level eventually. Cause, cause at some point kind of the last thing holding up the jobs market is construction jobs. Um, usually those have turned by now, but they're not because uh, multifamily is building just at an absolutely torrid pace. And then you also have, you know, the infrastructure bill that has, is putting a lot of people to work in the construction sector and the non-residential construction sector. So those have held up well. And I think that's tricked a lot of people into thinking there's a lot of strength in the economy that there isn't because at this point we have a glut of multifamily housing coming online. Um, that's absolutely going to crush rents. Um, so you, whenever that order book starts to wind down, I think if you're, if you're building, you know, 15 apartment buildings right now is a big engineering firm. And whenever, whenever a couple roll off, are you going to start a couple new projects? Probably not. You're just going to keep going down and down and down um, because there's just no point in building any more of it because there's the demands drying up and the supply is just huge. Um, I think you have to go back like 30, 40 years for having this many like apartments come online in one year. So and that's with rents already rolling over um, in a pretty meaningful way. So I think one of the most important things to keep an eye on from a macro perspective is construction jobs. And I think those are about to get hit pretty hard. Which goes back to that home builder short. <laughs> about to say, yeah. And um and 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 I guess, you know, the the sort of trend of inflation data lower is probably gonna continue. So I think the Fed's been the Fed streams of a soft landing are sort of from the fact that um, inflation has, at least the headline number has come down, uh, you know, relative to where it was. And you know, at the same time, the jobs numbers have remained positive. I think the the January number was an absolute blockbuster. Um, is, is, is that, is that, you know, is that adjustments probably, but yeah. Yeah. Wait, when you include those adjustments. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess just from a trader standpoint, so, you know, how, you know, when it comes to data like this, so, you know, you know, you sort of really dig in to the data um, to see, you know, to see what it, what exactly is going on. And, you know, when, you know, you see these adjustments, you see what's going on with construction workers, et cetera. And just from, from a trading standpoint, you know, one, I guess, how much of that, you know, how much, you know, how much does that matter, you know, for someone who's just trading, you know, versus the headline number, because I think, you know, does the market not usually just react to what the headline number is? 
Yeah, I think it depends on on your style as a trader. If 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 you're very like short term and you just you just you just care about what the market cares about like that day or maybe that week, it makes sense to kind of ignore the really under the hood stuff. Um, but I think if you want to skate where the puck's going um, with cycles, if you want to be like, if your goal is to be like called six to eighteen months ahead of the Fed to try and figure out what the Fed's going to have to do in the future, then then digging into that stuff makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, having done this for a few years now, what I notice is that when I dig into where I think things are going to go and what I think it will make the Fed do, I, I find like there's, there's a lot of clues and they seem pretty obvious. And then you'll, you know, if you listen to the Fed, it's, it's super clear. They're not really paying attention to the same stuff you are. Um, it's, it's, it's almost like the Fed's the trader that only cares about the headline. And you're the, you're the one that's almost like a policymaker, like really digging in to figure out, no, where are we actually going so I can be ready for it? Um, but that's beautiful because that's, that creates tons of opportunity. I, you go back to 2020, 2021, you know, the fed's like, Oh, there's no inflation. Like there's just nothing to worry about. No, we don't need to raise rates yet. It's fine. But if you were, and if you just looked at the coincident data as it was coming in, like, okay, that, that makes sense what they're saying. But if you were really looked under the hood, like things were just red hot. Like the fed didn't care about like what, you know, PPI was doing or anything like that at the time. But if you were looking at, at things like that or, um, you know, just some of the soft survey data, it, it was just painfully clear. We're going to have massive inflation. Like, I, I don't even know how else to say it. Um, and then sure enough, like, you know, a year later, the fed kind of figures it out and then they do what they always do and they overreact in the other direction. So for the last year, I'm looking at the data and I'm just like, what are they talking about? Like they, why aren't they looking at this and this and this? And like, I, and then usually about a year later, they kind of figure it out because it, you know, it, it, it shows up in that headline data that everyone stares at. Um, but the other thing I, I do, and I think everyone does, is you figure out what the Fed cares about, and then you try to go crack the code on that to figure out where it's going to go or what it's doing. Um, so that's, that's a big part of it. Anything from job openings, you know, the Fed was talking about job openings steadily. So, if, you know, you go and take a hard look at it, like what, what's mm. really going on with this data? Um so that's, that's a good example for one that I found when I really did a deep dive on it, that it, it's completely worthless data, more or less. Now I, I have to care about it because they do, but if you look at, you know, survey response levels or um, the fact that, uh, you know, anyone filing a, a little tax form, like maybe that may be, you know, listed as a job or, um, you know, some of these little temporary jobs and, and things like that are getting counted. Or maybe does someone leave something up on a website over time and they don't take it down? Like there's just so many problems with the data. Um, and then the Fed themselves, you know, you, they have a, a, a litany of papers that a lot of times are great at contradicting their own like macro policy. Um, and, and they had one on job openings that showed most of the job openings, they actually aren't ones that are competed for. They're um, you know, like for new, for new jobs, what they are is like, they're just trying to poach each other's employees. So it might be a job opening, but you're just trying to get that like, uh, like really senior, like software developer to come over from the other company to yours. That's what, that's like what it's targeted at. It's not, a, um, you know, a new position at a hotel. So when you kind of look at it through that lens and they, and they actually broke it out and quantified it. And it was like clear that almost all those job openings, they're just there to poach. That's not like a real new job, job opening. So whenever, the Fed divides job openings by unemployed people. Like that's just a total misnomer. Um, and and there's a that's a that's one example of many where 
I, I think if you do a deep dive on the data, you realize like sometimes the Fed's either staring at the wrong stuff um, or or just getting it wrong. Um, and to their credit, though, like, if you look at something like uh, you know all the inflation that's coming from from rent and from housing right now, which is most of it um, when you break it down, I give them credit because they've they're kind of looking through that. You see all the ex housing stuff now because. The Fed was, you know, to their credit, smart enough to realize, like, okay, in real life, rent and, and house prices are going down. So yeah, it's seven percent inflation in our data, but we we know just because we can look out the window, that's not true. So they they stopped paying attention to it. I give them credit for that. So every once in a while, they do get something right, but a lot of times they're not really skating where the puck's going. They're they're just worried about where it is today, um, and that's that's why they tend to over tighten and and then take too long to to tighten, you know, on the back end. Yeah, yeah, and and I guess you know in many ways they're looking they're looking at I guess you know backward looking data and inflation and I guess unemployment and then you know they're using these tools that affect the future, aka interest rates, to make decisions about the future using data about the past. So it's like you know where where we've been, not where we're going to be. Yeah, exactly. And if you if you look at today's data based on the interest rates you just changed, it's it it's, it's it's like the equivalent of if you only if everyone had to refi every single day their entire balance sheet to the new rate. If that was the case, then you there's no lag, right? But we all know that you know loans have terms, and some some of it's long term, some of it's short term. But if you you know the the fun thing for everyone to talk about now is commercial real estate. Um, so I don't like talking about it because it's too popular right now. But at the same time, you look at this like floating rate debt. Um, so it's a perfect example of, well, give it long enough, then all this floating rate debt, you know, re-rates higher at, at a level that makes basically an entire sector um, just unviable anywhere near current prices. So that's why, you know, I've been writing about office real estate for probably a year now because it, it, just, it was like a, one of those obvious bugs waiting for it to hit a windshield. Um, and now we're starting to see that happen. And um, while commercial real estate as a whole you know, I think is getting drugged through the mud way too much. I, I do think office real estate's not. I think that's like that genuinely is that big of a problem, and it's just now like starting to hit you know headlines because it's just become a problem. Because again, they didn't all you know refi the the first day that the Fed raised interest rates. Like some of that stuff's just now coming around to reset. Um, so you you essentially have monetary policy. They like to think that that their transmission goes through, you know, stocks and bonds and stuff like that, but not really. It, it goes through financing and financing typically isn't reset every day. Um, and that's why you have a lag. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, one more critique of the like, policymakers that you have is, um, is the SPR. So, you know, do you, you know, could you comment on, you know, what the, what the government is doing with the SPR and, you know, what you think, you know, they you know, should really, they, they should really be doing. Yeah. So here I diverge from a lot of like a lot of my friends that are big oil bulls um, that have just, you know, trashed the administration throughout for selling, you know, one drop of SPR because we might need it for some intergalactic battle or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> if you look at when we set that up, you know, we didn't really we didn't really make much oil in America. So we we really needed it. Um, but now we do. We make we, you know, we produce a lot of oil. Granted, you know, we can't we can't refine all of it ourselves. So it's still important to have um, the SPR. Um, but I think it's less important. So I think it was, it was very, it was a very smart move economically, politically, financially, all of it to sell some. Um, but 
you know, if you're, if you, if you're going to sell it at 120 bucks and you're not going to buy it back when it gets to 70, like, okay, well, like that's, that's dumb. That, it, that reminds me of so many other, you know, government policies where you kind of only play one side. It's like, you know, Keynesianism in general is known for, um, you, you know, the, the spending at certain times and then the kind of the giving it back in the good times, but no one ever gives it back in the good times. Like, um, to me, this is like, it's, it's akin to that. Like, this yeah. only works if you go both ways. So uh, with prices where they are already, they should be refilling in my opinion. Um, now I think they're probably going to get lucky with the recession that will allow them to do some refilling um, at the prices that they, they want. But to me, like, especially when you already have zero street cred with that industry at, for this administration, um, I, don't, I don't think that's any secret that they're not re really loved in Houston. Um <laughs> this would be a great time to, you know, give some certainty to that market and to, to shale producers. Uh, if I had a dollar for every time the president talked about how shale producers should be out there doing more, like, well, tell them like, Hey, every, every day that we're under X price, we're going to get out there and we're going to bid for some, you know, let them lock in some, some future prices, that, especially if you want them to invest. Um, so I think it has been a, a, a missed opportunity to this point. And any, you know, if you can, if you can sell it at, at 100 and, and buy it back at even 80, like, why wouldn't you do that? Like, I, I just don't understand. Uh, yep. I mean, I do, like, if politically, they don't want to put one cent a bid back into to gas at the pump because it's so scary politically. But um, I, to me, it's it's irresponsible not, not to be buying back now. Yeah. yeah, especially when oil came back to 67, 68, I think last week or the week before, yeah. That sounds like time to back up the truck and, and go fill up the FDR back up. Yeah. And then, and then be ready to slam the market again when you need to in the future. Exactly. And it's like, it's almost like range trading. So maybe you should, maybe you should forget about Pinecone Macro, you know, become the chief trader at the SPR. So. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'm, I am from the Gulf coast, so I could make it work. There you go. So, you know, you did it. You'd actually make it, make it work. And, and, you know, I guess, you know, from a long-term standpoint, you know, the, one of the long-term theses that I believe you're bullish on is uh, nuclear energy and that for uranium. Um, so in that space, you know, has you know has anything changed since you know the last thing I think we spoke about six months or a year back? Um, you know, how you no know, has anything changed? And if so, you know, what has? Just more good news, in my opinion. Um, now it, it will get caught up in the cyclical pain of a, a recession, and it will it will be. I was talking about how gas, you know, kind of trades with oil whenever it goes down. So, so will, so will uranium. It won't make any sense, but uranium will, will have problems in a recession too. But that to me is just going to be a good opportunity, but really it's just good news. I mean, in the last year, you just, you've had a lot of countries that had sworn it off that are kind of coming back to the table. Um, we think of, think about Korea. That is one example. Uh, Japan is basically all the way back in uh, a lot of countries in Europe that were off are getting interested again. So I think it, it's kind of playing out the way I thought where it, it just makes just way too much sense to ignore. So like eventually it, the reality of it, it just kind of unveils itself and no one can really get away from that reality. Even if you don't like it, like you realize we have to do this. Um, it, one of the biggest, you know, kind of myths I've ever seen is just renewables in general. Everyone for, first of all, everyone just ignores the fact that you have to have that Kind of fossil fuel base load but just standing behind it at all times to be ready to take over for it um which makes it not at all cheap whenever you kind of add up the cost in reality um 
so if you think about nuclear, it's renewable and you don't have to do that. Uh, you know, same, same with hydro, you, it, it doesn't have to go turn off every time, you know, a cloud comes or whatever. So, um, but hydro is kind of small unless you're maybe Norway or, you know, the Pacific Northwest or something, for, but for most of the world, you just don't have enough. Um, so having nuclear makes a ton of sense because it's renewable. Um, it, you know, it's, it's not going to be emitting carbon and, uh, it's incredibly inefficient. So I, it, it's just so obvious that, that that's the way you have to go. Um, what, one of my favorite things, and I, I certainly didn't come up with it is, uh, the whole notion of, you know, if we just discovered uranium and, and, and fission today, we would, we would all hail it as, as an absolute miracle, you know, from the gods that we have this and yet we do have it. And we just kind of treat it like it's just another energy source. It's just kind of mind blowing to me. Um, I just view uranium as inevitable. Um, but I will say I I'm pretty much on mm -hmm. this one, a, a permable and, 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 and frankly, a zealot. So I, it's not almost all my other trading is very like clear minded. Like I'll be long and, and then short the next day. I don't care. I'm not married to any of my trades, but, but I think uranium is probably an exception to that rule where I, I find it so valuable to humanity that I probably get a little too, a little too emotional in my, um, in my view of it as, as a tradable asset. But with that said, all, all along my view has been, Hey, when uranium hits a hundred bucks, um, and I've been investing in it since it was under 20, like a hundred bucks is where like, all right, that's where I'm like probably at least taking half of it off. Um, and then winding it down from there. Cause like, it'd be back to being, you know, kind of at fair value up around that level. So, and we're at like about 50 now for anyone that doesn't follow it closely. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and I guess, you know, one asset class that we haven't gone through yet has been currencies. And I think one of the charts that you shared recently was the, was the chart of, um, of, of, of yen shorts or I think it was the yen positioning in the, uh, in the futures market. So you know, with, with regards to, uh, with regards to currencies, one, are there any opportunities that you're seeing? And then two, you know, specifically to the yen, um, you know, if we see oil go down in a recession and you're typically, you know, the yen, the yen is also like a safe haven, you know, it's like the inverse carry trade. Um, you know, is that, is that something that you'd be looking to buy into a recession? I mean, it doesn't have to be against the dollar, but just in general. Yeah. In, in general, I love the yen and I, I love the yen to me, the yen right now is the ultimate hedge. The ultimate hedge isn't gold. It's not Bitcoin. It's not volatility. It's the yen. Um, and especially if you think inflation will continue to be a problem and double, especially if you think inflation will continue to be a problem in Japan. Um, Japan is the largest creditor in the world on net by a mile. They have over $3 trillion. They've pushed out into the rest of the world investing um, because they had to, because they had no interest rates um, at home and not much growth at home. But now that they have a little bit of inflation and they have theoretically soon, possibly a little bit of interest rates, um, as strong as the dollar's been, you know, their, their hedging costs, uh, to invest in foreign currencies has been bad. So you put all that together. If you have a situation where inflation stays sticky there and they're, they're frankly rooting on a, a wage price spiral. Um, so if that, if they get what they're wishing for there, um, all of a sudden you have maybe a trillion, maybe $2 trillion worth of, um, assets that have to get sold overseas and come home to Japan. Um, and we saw like actually in 2022, a lot, like they, they sold a lot of foreign assets and brought them home just in 2022. And that barely moved the end, um, which is a little interesting, but, 
I think the inn makes a ton of sense because it is, you know, a, a normal safe haven. And that's just because, you know, Japanese people and institutions will sell things when it gets weird and bring it home. Um, I think there's a really good chance that happens. And I think you could see that in a lot of selling of sovereigns, which does scare me as, as a treasury long and as a TLT long, like if they especially did that in any disorderly manner, rates around the world would be a huge problem. Um, and I think the most vulnerable place to all of this is, is Australia. So for that reason, I'm short Aussie yen. Um, I view it more as a hedge than anything, not like a real like trade that I'm just trying to make a bunch of money on, but like a, if things get weird, this will probably go up, um, trade. But if you look at, I think they own 12% of the Australian sovereign bond market. So wow. if they decided to, to dump a decent amount of Australian sovereigns, then Aussie yen is going to have a real problem. Not to mention, you know, when I just look at the real estate market in Australia, things like that, that are very rate sensitive and now they have higher rates. Obviously they just paused. So maybe that will chill out. But um, I think Australia is uniquely levered to low interest rates. And I think in some ways, Japan is uniquely levered to interest rates in a way on the flip side. So I, I really like um, the yen against the Australian dollar. I like it versus a lot of things, but it really the Aussie. Obviously, the carry part of it is is not insignificant. But um, but on that on that note, you, know, you mentioned you mentioned as like an inverse carry trade, you could have a stampede on on those carry trades, and almost everybody, if you want to if you want to do a carry trade and you want to be long, I don't know South Africa or Brazil or Indonesia or something almost everybody puts it on against the yen because they don't have interest rates. So if all of a sudden everyone had to dump carry trades and it became a stampede, then the yen would absolutely explode higher to the point where they would, they would go from intervening to make prop it up to intervening to, to, to hold it down within, you know, a year or two. And I, I, I'm not saying that's, in, that's um, probable, but I think it's more possible than anyone in the market would, would think about it or price it right now. Mm -hmm. and 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 i guess uh one more one more thing uh you know from from sort of the standpoint of you know what does well in a recession uh you know is there any vol or any any sort of options uh that, that look cheap to you right now because in many in many ways uh the VIX is somewhat cheap here at i think 18 19 something like that like in, on on a on say, you know, a few more like looking out just a few months you know it's it's not not the most expensive. So is there, you know, are there is there, you know, any place from any sort of, um, I guess, the long wall strategy that you like? Yes, absolutely. That's a, that's a good eye that you kind of noticed it that way. Um, for me, it's June, uh, June VIX futures. Um, now whether you do that Delta one or, or with options, either way, I think makes sense. But I mentioned that my, May, June was where I think the, the lag reaper shows up and starts, starts pummeling data. Um, and you also have between now and then you have uh, the debt ceiling, which is gonna, I assume it, well, if it doesn't get resolved, obviously volatility is gonna go higher, but if it does get resolved, then then you have the TGA rebuild, which is gonna drain liquidity and probably hurt the market, um, which I assume is gonna, not gonna be great for volatility. Um, obviously I mentioned just basic macro data, things gonna go down. I think, I think we'll finally maybe see a crack between now and that June VIX expiration. Um, for the jobs market, I'm not seeing job losses maybe by then, but, but cracks, let's call it. Um, 
And on top of that, I, again, going back to um, excess savings, those, those, I'm not saying they're zeroed out by then, but they're low enough to, and they're especially low enough for the bottom quartile where like the consumption that comes from them is really drying up by, by then. So I, I just think there's a, there's a lot of things that could make June volatility spike and it's priced at like 22, 23 right now, which I mean, it's not, it's not like that's dirt cheap, but for being out a few months that, that, that is pretty dirt cheap. Um, so I, I am long that I've been buying it kind of in chunks every time it, it goes down and um, would be happy to give, give that back between 30 and 40. <laughs> if, if not hold one little contract for it, for, you know, for <laughs> it to go even higher. Oh, that's even the hard part with volatility is when to let go of it because you tell yourself you're going to let it all go back at 30 and then it hits 30 and you're like, Oh no, but the world's burning down. So I'm, I'm going to hold it till 80, but that only happens about once every 50 years. So <laughs> well, once every 10 years now, so 2008 yeah. and 2020. So three, 12 years. Awesome. Awesome. Chase. So before we wrap up the podcast, anything that any, you know, closing thoughts, anything that you want to mention or like something that we haven't discussed that you wanted to talk about? No, I can't think of anything. I think we hit everything pretty well. I would just tell everyone to uh, keep an eye out for the lag reaper because I, I think it's going to come around here soon. Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, Chase, with that, you know, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. It was, it was a pleasure talking to you. Great as always. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.